0: Sometimes in journalism, it's like pulling teeth trying to obtain records from public agencies. Other times, the state accidentally sends sensitive records to your news organization. Then, it's decision time. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with Oregonian. Before we start, a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pacific Source Health Plans, for supporting the show. Up next, Therese Bottomley, the editor of The Oregonian and Oregon Live and vice president of content for The Oregonian Media Group, talks about the latest public records and transparency questions in our newsroom. You might also hear from her pandemic puppy, Ruby, at times. <laughs> God. We talked about the state accidentally sending our newsroom and the Salem Statesman Journal records identifying tens of thousands of workers and their vaccination status. We talked about how the newsroom handles those quandaries, what it says about our broader transparency fights, and the rationale for how we are handling those ethical questions. Here's our conversation. Therese Bottomley, thanks for coming back on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Andrew.
0: So Therese, you've been a leader in our industry and in the state for decades, advocating for access to public records, and recently our colleagues received records on vaccination status among state workers, but um, it was much more than we'd asked for. Can you describe what happened?
1: Yeah, so as the deadline for vaccinations drew closer, our reporters asked for information on progress toward uh, meeting the vaccine mandate or seeking an exemption. with the idea that we wanted to be prepared for a major disruption of services through public agencies if it looked like many, many workers were not going to make the deadline. Mm -hmm. And so the state started sending us an Excel spreadsheet every day with updated numbers. And then Monday afternoon, the Excel spreadsheet was sent to six editors and reporters here at the Oregonian Oregon Live. And one of the editors called it up and realized very quickly that it contained not just categories of information and aggregate numbers, but specifically named individuals associated with various statuses, which included medical exemption, religious exemption, vaccination documentation submitted, or uh, employee has not yet submitted documentation.
0: And obviously, this is a extremely hot-button issue, not just in Oregon, but nationally, what kind of went through editors' minds when we got that information?
1: Well, it's not as unusual as people might think for a newsroom to come into possession of information that some people might wish to remain confidential. Mm -hmm. So it might be that somebody uh, leaks us documents that are internal to an organization, and they may have whatever their own personal purposes for doing that. Typically, it's somebody who feels something has gone wrong in an organization and feels like the organization should be held to account. So they leak to the media uh information that they believe supports their position that something has gone wrong and ought to be revealed to the public. Uh Sometimes it's inadvertent, as in this case appears to be. The courts, for instance, often uh there might be an order sealing something or there might be something marked confidential, but then ends up in the open court file and court reporters very typically will go through files, uh look for new lawsuit filings, look for uh indictments or probable cause affidavits. And it's not that unusual for them to find perhaps an order or a memo or a document that someone had intended to be under seal, and yet it was left there in the public court file or on the public court uh, website that that uh, lawyers and the media and others have access to. Similarly, there's the old reply all oh. that uh, many people in many walks of life have uh, fallen victim to um, where somebody gets an email from a member of the media and intends to respond internally and uh, hits reply all inadvertently and sends well, here's the memo that we really don't want to give out and, you know, sends it off. And sometimes it's just very happenstance. I I got a very long voicemail once, a voicemail recording that was a lawyer I had called for some reason. And he had been leaving an evening banquet and he left a message saying he'd gotten my my message Mm -hmm. and forgot to hit end call. And I heard his 15-minute critique of the judge's uh, keynote address at the banquet, because uh, he didn't realize that the recording was continuing to go. So it might be information like that that's really not newsworthy. It might be information that's highly newsworthy. We just don't know when we receive it.
0: What do you make of this particular inadvertent leak, I guess. Is this something that um, is newsworthy? And ha- how have we approached that? Because it's not like we just willy nilly publish people's names in the newspaper on a daily basis. We put a lot of thought into it. But um, what what can you say about the decision making process on issues like this?
1: Well, the first decision was, you know, the the inadvertent release itself seemed newsworthy to me that it was uh, something of great interest to certainly those forty thousand workers, but also anybody else who had concerns about the uh, amount of privacy around uh, vaccination status, any other employee of a, a public agency. So I, I think it it the the first question was how do we handle news around the fact that this did happen, right? And in that case, we understood that there would be an immediate question. Among some readers, would the Oregonian handle this database the way it has handled uh, databases it has sought through public records uh, requests, such as public employee salary databases, and data for which it has fought in the courts, data that public agencies have tried to withhold and we had to go to court to reveal and keep online now open to the public, such as the beneficiaries and the amounts they received through the public employee retirement system. So our very first story on the inadvertent release of the information, I did include a line that said we had a no intention of publishing the database in full. And I did feel people would want to know that. I do think as journalists, we had an obligation, as we do with any information that we come into uh, possession of, to look at at it and make a judgment and examination of the facts and determine whether in fact there is anything that is newsworthy in that, uh, in that information. So for instance, I think it might be quite newsworthy if any of the people who had been standing up in front of Oregonians for 20 months, or I guess less than that for the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So almost a year standing up and saying that, um, Everyone should get vaccinated uh, and that it's the only safe and effective way out of this pandemic. If any of those people ha- had sought, for instance, a religious exemption, that might be of interest um, to Oregonians. Similarly, I think that in any sort of organization that has a command and control type structure, if you have a commander who... Uh, say, uh, ask for a religious exemption, and then you notice a pattern where everybody under that person's command also seeks that, it might raise questions about whether or not there was any sort of influence at work mm-hmm. or any sort of undue pressure. So there there are circumstances where I could see that it might lead us to do additional reporting.
0: What's your email and voicemail box been like since uh, since we reported on on the leak?
1: I think that Hillary Baroud, our state government reporter, probably got more queries because her byline was on the story. I have gotten probably less than a half dozen direct requests from readers, um, many of whom wanted simply to know, were they in the, the release? Were, were their names included? I also received, uh, a uh, requests from the, uh, state police, uh, union. And the Oregon Youth Authority Union about what we uh, one asking that we delete it and one asking what we planned and what we intended to do with the information, and I responded uh, to the the Youth Authority Union that I was not you know entirely sure at this point or wasn't able to disclose exactly what we planned to do, but that in any event we are completely uh, used to and comfortable with handling confidential information or information that is in some way, some people might wish to keep confidential. And we have uh, a responsibility journalistically to use great care with that information. So we plan to follow best practices.
0: Did we have any intention on the front end to to do this level of reporting about, you know, some of the command structure that that you just outlined um, and that that inadvertently kind of fell into our our lap or or was this really not something that, you know, we felt was important to put our resources behind journalistically?
1: Well, we certainly wanted to give people a sense in aggregate, and that is why we initially sought the information and were receiving the Excel spreadsheets. Because we wanted to track what were the trend lines and how did they match up with other states or other agencies? And um, that would in, then lead us potentially to additional reporting. Also, we did want to hear the individual voices of people who chose not to get vaccinated at risk of their job or their position, and we in fact did include several of those voices, people who had cooperated with us and had agreed to be named and identified in the newspaper and online in advance of this mandate, people who felt strongly uh for various reasons that they did not wish to get vaccinated. But I think that um you know, we have an obligation to seek the truth and our, our highest, um, we owe the most to the truth. And when you look at a situation where you have double the number of religious exemptions sought and granted than some perhaps comparable agencies, it raises questions. Yeah. It raises questions about the, um, the accuracy, it raises questions about the intentionality. It raises questions about truthfulness. It certainly raises large public policy questions about the efficacy of the mandates and whether or not the state should have had statewide guidelines for what sort of level of proof would be required or what, what the guidelines were, would be. And instead, the state made a decision at some level that individual agencies would be in charge of that. And so I think that um, when you have perhaps a loose uh, system that is granting exemptions uh, willy-nilly without perhaps much um, evidence of a sincerely held religious belief, then, um, and another one who's being strict, that that raises questions about whether or not this was done in in the right way. And I think that's exactly our role is to look at those larger questions and ask whether or not there were things that should have been done better and could be done better in the future.
0: Does this particular scenario stand out in your You know, you've handled so many of these public records fights where like, you know, we we turn to you and other experts in the newsroom uh, to help refine our arguments when we're making appeals for the release of documents. But I mean, what does this conjure in terms of, you know, we're still in this pandemic and there's this public health issue and it's such a hot button issue. Can you think of anything that jumps out that's kind of comparable at all in your career?
1: Well, I would say that the PERS benefits uh, fight was somewhat comparable in that there was a very um, strong feeling that that was not just private information. And this would be what PERS recipients were receiving in terms of dollar amounts per month and uh, by name. And right now you can look up any state worker and you can find out by name and by department and by job title what Joe Jones, your neighbor, is making from the State Department of Forestry. And once somebody retired, we used to be able to get that information just as we could get salary information. And then the state quit releasing it. So we went to court uh, and asked for that information after um The way the public records law works is you ask for the information, you get denied, you appeal, and then uh, the attorney general agreed with us it should be public, and then the state, PERS um, agency, hired outside attorneys and fought us on it, and there was a lot of concern among retirees about that information being public. There was a lot of concern around identity theft. There was just some um, embarrassment uh that somebody made less than yeah. somebody else. Um, uh, one woman called me and was angry. She had met a fellow retiree from years for coffee and her her friend had said, You're buying from now on because she'd looked her up and knew that she was getting more every month from person than than she was. So, you know, it it was um emotional. It was um concerning. It was uh, difficult some uh, retirees went to court and tried to get a a restraining order an injunction prohibiting the state from releasing the information but in the at the end of the day we prevailed we maintained that database online today uh it was in the middle of like covid in the middle of a huge running story about hers and about the management of hers and the decision making the um, decisions that had been made in the past that uh, re, you know left people with just really 110 percent of their ending salary. There were all sorts of questions about how people could pump up their final salary and thus their purse benefits. So it had a a larger context. Yeah, you know, it, in contrast to we've had occasions where someone sends us a document that maybe inadvertently they forgot to redact a social security number or a cell phone number. Or, A date of birth and there's no news value and there's no context for that, so that's not something where we would rush to publish it. You know, we we would always want to very carefully examine the information that we've obtained. We always want to understand. um, Maybe the mailman. Not sure. Okay. Anyway, you're saying we we want to
0: understand. uh,
1: we always want, when we're looking at whether to publish information that um, might have a consequence that we don't, um, we can't control once it's published. We want to have a strong journalistic purpose for doing that. We want to be able to articulate what is the greater good. Like I said, our loyalty chiefly is to the truth and to the people, uh, and so we, we want to always make sure that we are thinking about, you know, what is the what is we're not going to publish something just because we have it. You know, we're going to publish something because we think it illustrates a larger issue that is of consequence to Oregonians.
0: Do you think, you know, the social awkwardness of knowing your your neighbor makes more than you thought they did is um, more or less important than knowing your neighbor who happens to work for the state and we have access to their public records um, isn't vaccinated against a you know, a a disease that could be harmful to your loved
1: ones? I think reasonable people could make arguments on uh, various sides of that question, uh, in part depending on the role of the individual. For instance, you know, I think there are significant uh, questions when uh, workers in the Department of Corrections have incarcerated people under their custody and control, where one of their primary obligations is to care for their well-being, their health, their safety, and I think that there are, are serious questions raised if there is an extraordinary number of people not taking basic steps to protect uh, people who are incarcerated, especially when we know that that people have died within the walls of the prisons. Now, does that mean I automatically am going to name? Susie, Joe, and John, mm-hmm. not necessarily, but I'm not ruling it out either if we think that there is a circumstance where that is uh warranted. So I, I do think in any case we would assess the information. I mean, we didn't do anything wrong in getting it. You know, we didn't ask anybody to do anything wrong. We didn't do anything wrong ourselves. It was completely on the up and up. We just happened to Get information that we didn't expect, but I do think once we have it in and we can't unsee it, we have an obligation as journalists to examine it and decide whether or not any of it, in fact is so newsworthy that it trumps any individual's privacy interests
0: what other you know public records battles uh, or, or uh, transparency issues are on your docket at the moment if you can talk about any of them
1: well there are always always um struggles to uncover information from the public you know we just saw that the police released the identity of a homicide victim had been you know, Almost two weeks before that name was released. Yeah. Uh, so getting basic information about, uh, public safety events is always a challenge. Um, we sometimes have more, um, formal, uh, struggles. And in, in the case right now, we had asked Mike Rogway, our business reporter had asked, could uh, could we find out, please, as Google is intending to expand its data center presence in the Dalles, could we uh, know how much water use Google's data center had uh, used? Uh, and we're told no. And so we, as the Oregon law allows, we appealed that denial to the DA of that county, the district attorney and argued that, um, it should be released. The, the city of the Dallas Public Works Department created a record and has a record that shows how much water was used. And that is a public record. And, uh, the city said, no, it's, it's a trade secret and, and that it should not be released because it would harm Google's competitive. Uh, position in, in the landscape of data center competition. We were successful. The district attorney ruled that it was not a trade secret and ordered the city of the Dallas to release the information. Uh, we think that the residents of the Dallas who are very concerned about in a, in a Western drought of long standing are very concerned about, uh, how much water is being consumed? What is the projection for the water being consumed? What percentage of the overall water is being consumed? And what happens if the water runs out? So um these are basic questions that we think the public, not just residents of the Dalles, but Oregonians have a right to, to the answer to. So that so far is a victory. We don't have the Documents yet, but they have been ordered to be released. The city now has the option of giving those to us or going to court to fight us uh, and fight the district attorney's order. The other one that we are working on is um, over the course of many months, as Oregon has changed its law regarding juvenile uh, defendants, Mm -hmm. where they used to, in certain cases, be. Charged as adults, a decision made in the district attorney's office. And then, uh, now the law has said, no, they need to start in juvenile court and be waived into adult court after a case is made that they really should be in adult court. And this is in recognition that, uh, minors, juveniles, um, make mistakes. They're, you know, they're, decision-making ability, their impulse control, uh, their ability to be reformed. You know, there are all sorts of issues that we think about now that maybe weren't as well understood sure. or given as much credit um, back in the day when uh, Measure 11 uh, created this automatic um, sending of people to adult court. And so we have been following these cases, reported Noel Crombie has been following these cases and has House successfully seen a couple of orders from judges leaving juvenile defendants in um in juvenile court which has a much uh you you might say a, a better chance upon being held responsible to uh, not have a lengthy sentence they have caps on when somebody can be no longer held within the juvenile system and then in Washington county came a case where the the teenager, now 19, but uh, under 18 when the crime occurred, was in fact sent to adult court. And that was the first case under this new law. And so we wanted to see the judge's reasoning. We, Our attorneys made a request through the courts. The judge agreed to release it. The um, defendant's attorney objected and has uh, appealed to the Oregon Supreme Court uh, hoping to bar the release of that information to us. So we haven't heard yet when uh or if the court will take it up. But, you know, that's another case where there's a it's not just about that one case. Yeah. There's a greater context there as Oregonians should know how this new law that lawmakers pass into statewide law, how various counties are implementing it and what the potential. um good things about the law and what potentially problems there might be because, um, they may want to go back and make some changes, uh, over the years. So without the Oregonians reporter, Noel Crombie, you know, working to bring that to light, Oregonians would otherwise, you know, not have that insight into, did we get the result that we expected when, when lawmakers, uh, pushed, through this new uh, re- reform.
0: Yeah, that's really illustrative, uh, Therese, of a lot of roadblocks we hit in our job. Like, I, I think a lot of people assume that we have more access to information now than we ever have, which is true in a lot of respects. But here's a case where there's this legislative fix. You know, there's a Advocacy push on the outside that led to it part of a national movement um, and even then we have to jump through all these hoops and it's not clear we'll we'll get all the information that that we think the public deserves to know
1: we're we're living in a, a time a great conundrum Andrew where um, there are more and more laws passed to try to protect our information at a time when we are blithely giving a lot of information to tech platforms like Facebook, um, yeah. you know, everybody celebrates their birthday on Facebook and, you know, it may not take too much sleuthing yeah. to discover your birth date, uh, which, you know, might be used for not, not too great things. The, the, um, the tracking that happens on, you know, if you look at a, a Nordstrom shoe sale on your phone, then you're suddenly seeing shoe ads everywhere you turn on the the, the web because of cookies. And yeah. so at a time when, you know, government and, and lawmakers are trying to protect people and protect their data and protect, in some cases, their genetic makeup from uh, being used to, you know, not give you life insurance or give you higher health insurance rates or whatever... We're also giving up as individuals. We're making the decision in some cases and just doing it without knowing it. In some cases, we're giving um not necessarily government, but private businesses more and more and more information about us. Think of how many people got DNA and you know, 23andMe or any of those DNA um mm-hmm. kits for Christmas over the years and spit into a tube and sent it off to a private company that's in the uh, profit-making business, and now they have a lot of information about you. And you see the intersection of that with government, where you see now police departments using those genealogical trees Mm -hmm. to find the answers to cold cases or to find the identities of long-found bodies who they never could identify, or in the case of the Golden State Killer, to find... A killer and rapist who had long escaped justice, and so uh, all this information is out there. It's just being used in ways we never uh, could have foreseen.
0: Uh, we'll just take a quick break, and then we'll talk more with Therese Bottomley, the editor of the Oregonian and Oregon Live, and vice president of content for the Oregonian Media Group. Last time we spoke was pretty early in the pandemic, Therese, and we were settling into our reporting and editing from home world and here we are we're still here do you ever sit back and just take a minute to think i can't believe we're still doing this
1: (laughs) yes um little did we know how early it was in the pandemic you know we went remote march 17th 2020 that means we all decamped the newsroom to our dining room tables our kitchens our spare rooms and we've been working remotely ever since. Um we did have hopes of coming back to the office uh after Labor Day. Now it's been pushed back to the you know the new year. Newsrooms are, you know, creative, collaborative, energetic places and we miss the newsroom. I think there's very few people who don't want to be back uh, at least some of the time. Um, it's the way new journalists learn from experienced Mm -hmm. journalists it's the way we make our story ideas sharper it's the way we share oh remember this happened or here's a source I talked to once who knows about that uh being together it it just makes everything better um some of the time and some of the time (laughs) it's great to be you know if you're writing a big long project it might be you might want to stay home and be in your spare room and put your head down and your headphones on and just concentrate. So I think when we do go back, it will be a combination of the hybrid, you know, the the work from home that we've all gotten used to and, and being back in the newsroom, you know, for planning, for collaboration, uh, election nights, yeah. you know, those sorts of, those sorts of things. So yes, it's been a long, longer than expected pandemic, uh, it, it 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 has been a challenge for reporting because um because it's gone on for so long and um it's so sprawling in terms of its impact the stories you could do are just um never ending yeah we did succeed most recently in something that we had hoped to do and it took a while to do it but we did get into an ICU to chronicle the, uh, wor- the really hard work of healthcare workers. Uh, this was at Providence with Beth Nakamura and Dave Killen and Jeff Manning. And then we were also able to get into Salem Hospital with Fedor Zarhin and Beth Nakamura to, uh, get more of the, uh, the patients and how patients were doing and how, uh, the, the uh, critical care Healthcare professionals were handling uh, patients.
0: Um, you talked a little bit about like the the mentoring aspect of of being in the newsroom. I mean, we've. What do you think? What what have we really excelled at in this remote life that maybe surprised you? And what do you think? Anything else that's been lacking that you feel that we've lost since we aren't um, in the newsroom together?
1: Well, when I became editor, I really wanted us to be known for you know, three things, consequential watchdog journalism, a robust daily report, and, you know, a celebration of the place we live, which is, you know, the best restaurants and the best beaches and all that great stuff. And I think that we have done all that. What I think we haven't been able to do is step back from the fire hose of news a bit. Every time we thought we got a handle on things like, you know, the as I said, we went remote and March 2020. At the end of May 2020, we had the social justice movement where protests in Portland were nightly and very large and went on for 150 straight nights, which we staffed with um, often a team or more than one team of journalists. Uh, and, And then it continued even sporadically after that. Then as we sort of got a handle on protests and it seemed to be Perhaps tapering off, we had September 2020 historic wildfires, which destroyed, you know, so many homes, entire communities in Santiam and in uh, uh, southern Oregon, around uh, Phoenix and Talent and uh, and uh, Lane County east of Eugene. So I mean, it really uh, was just a unrelenting um, fire hose of news and. I don't really fault us for not doing more big enterprise stories, say project level stories, like say Ghost of Highway 20, which is a multi-part series that took a lot of time and took several people out of the daily mix for months. We had a lot of what I would say are doubles and triples, you know, where we had a steady, uh, steady diet of really smart analysis and enterprise reporting where we were able to go deeper on COVID mm-hmm. on the things that are really important to people. Uh, we were able to step back on the social justice protests and, you know, talk, why are you still out here protesting? What has been accomplished um, and why people are protesting. We had an analysis of the, um, the intersection of um, uh, the African-American community in Portland and, and police violence and, so, you know, I think that we have had, uh, credit to the, the reporters and editors in the newsroom that they have been able to catch their breath occasionally, step back and do that bigger, you know, triple, as I said, or, or double that maybe would be on a Sunday front page or in the middle of the daily front page and really get back a little bit from the daily and try to put things in perspective. Like we did with our recent package on the spike in homicides here in Portland, you know, that was a heavy lift because the news didn't stop while we were trying to profile every single victim of yeah. homicidal violence this year in Portland.
0: The news has, has never stopped really, it seems, <laughs> but yes. Um, all right. Well, well, close it out with just some lightning, just five random questions, just first okay. thoughts that come to your mind just so readers and listeners can get to know you a little bit if they don't already know you um, favorite Portland park. If you're just heading to a park, after this chat to catch some autumnal bliss here in Portland?
1: I would say Washington Park.
0: Classic. Okay. Um,
1: Absolutely classic. <laughs> I, I'm
0: going to say Peninsula Park is mine. but uh, uh, That's
1: yeah. another good one when the roses are in bloom for sure.
0: Uh, the best book you've read in the past year or two?
1: Um, I would have to say The Warmth of Other Suns. It's quite an, um, an impress, And I'm late to reading it, but a very impressive uh, work of really journalism about the great migration from the South among Black Americans and why uh, and how that changed America forever.
0: You're a soccer nut, Therese, so I mean, if you're picking like a top five soccer, you know, or I guess let's do four, who's on your soccer Mount Rushmore if you're, if you're <laughs> picking uh, four players that, or coaches or whatever that you hold dearly?
1: Well, I'm old, so I would have to say Pele, uh, because that was, the, he was the, um, indisputed star when I was growing up in Portland, when Portland first had the Timbers and first became Soccer City USA. Messi, because he is, um, unstoppable if you haven't googled Messi never dives and you're a soccer fan you should uh, watch that on youtube he never flops like some (laughs) people we won't mention uh Diego Lavori I think is a really uh superstar superstar athlete I think I would leave it at that top three
0: okay um and what's one thing that you'll keep with you from pandemic living going forward that you're not going to revert back to
1: uh stretchy waistbands
0: (laughs) I think all of us can attest to that (laughs) well Therese thanks so much for all of your insight and for taking time to talk today
1: I appreciate it Andrew you're doing a terrific job I never miss the show and I thank you for having me back
0: it's been it was too long I apologize for it being too
1: long (laughs) that's fine lots to talk about always
0: Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the program and tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at oregonlivecom support. Until next time.